You guys know how I've been. You know, I'm, I'm always energetic, always running up, up, up and down the walls. You know, and as a child, as I got older, I've always heard the phrase "at your age." You know, I've always heard that phrase "at your age." I heard it more when I was a teenager, but、um, <clears throat> I always heard that. And as I got older, as I got older, I knew what they meant. You know, I should mature, I should straighten up. But as I got older, you know, around fifteen or sixteen, I thought about it, and I was like. You know, the next time someone tells me to act your age, I'm gonna say, "But this is my first time being 16. How am I supposed to know how I'm at? You know, everyone else my age is acting just like me, or even worse. You know, and so people always tell me, 'Act your age.' But in reality, your age doesn't make you do anything. Your age doesn't mean anything. It just means that's how long you've been alive. You know, being 18. You know, while I did want to get a driver's license. Being 18 wasn't the wasn't the cause of that. I wanted to drive. I wanted to, you know, be able to go around on my own. Not because I was 18. You know, being 23 doesn't make me want to do taxes all of a sudden. You know, it doesn't work that way. You see, while age doesn't necessarily make us, you know, tend to do something or want to to do something, being a Christian should. Being a Christian should make us do something. Should make us do works. And so, in the book of James, chapter two, he addresses you know the sin of of respect of persons, or as you may know, you know discrimination, prejudice, whatever it may be. And then he goes and he talks about complete obedience, and he segues all of that into having enough genuine or having genuine faith as a Christian to where you start, where you want to start doing works, where it produces you to do good things. And so, as you're there, let me just give you a little bit of background on James chapter two. Jay or James, James, he's the half brother of Jesus, and he writes this epistle, this letter to Jewish Christians scattered around,、um, scattered abroad at that time. And he writes to them about faith. He writes them to endure hardness. He he writes to them to to、um, resist sin, and he calls them. He encourages them、um, in this trying time. And so, looking at it in chapter two, verse number one, let's look at it. And we'll pray. He says, "My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons." Let's pray, Lord.、Uh, we thank you that we get to gather here tonight and hear from you, Lord. Thank you for the Bible and all of its truth. You show us how to live life. You show us how、um, to get to heaven. You show us who you are and how you want us to be. Lord,、uh, I pray that you be with me tonight as I preach. Help me to stay calm. Help me to. Have an, a good flow of words and my thoughts out. Pray to help us have attentive ears and open hearts as、um, as we hear from your word. And pray that you let the Holy Spirit do its、uh, do his job. In Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. And so immediately, right away, James in verse one, he talks about you know how Christians cannot have partiality, cannot have respect of persons, cannot be prejudiced. You know, he says that.、Um, If you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to have the faith of our Lord Jesus, you can't have it with respect to persons. Now, this sin can take many forms, but here in this chapter, James addresses you know partiality towards the poor and the rich, right? He immediately admonishes these Jewish Christians that it's not befitting for a Christian to have respect of persons. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work, and we'll know exactly why in a minute. Look at verse two and three. He gives us an example. Of of you know respective persons, he tells them, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come a poor man 
in vile raiment. And he says, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing and say unto him, sit thou here in the good place and say to the poor, stand thou there or sit here under my footstool. And here's what he pretty much says. You guys, you guys will have two people come in, right? And one of them is dressed in nice clothing, has all of the colors. They have gold rings. They are obviously affluent. They're very wealthy. And you cater to this guy. You say, oh, sit here in the good spot. Sit here where you can hear the preacher. And you just pay attention to him and you cater. Well, there's someone else who visits your church. And he, you could tell he's poor. He has vile raiment and doesn't look good. And you tell him to just stand. You tell him to sit on the floor. James never even says that your, your church is filled or all the seats are taken. He just he, had, he emphasized how badly the Jewish Christians have been treating the poor. And he says, that is not okay. That is not allowed. Here's why. Look at verse 4. He tells them, he reasons with them. He says, are you not then partial in yourselves and are become judges of evil thoughts? He says that when you are partial, when you have prejudice, when you are you know, res- doing respect of persons, he says, you're creating partiality amongst ourselves. You're being fake within ourselves. He says here, see, class, distinct- class distinctions do not matter to God, nor should they exist in his church. You see, yes, while we have those who are young and those who are old, those who are male and female, possessions um, or lack of, that is not our measure of value. That is not our measurement of, you know, how we treat others. Because that's not how God does it with us. That doesn't matter. You know, dignity comes from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't come from our possessions or our professions or our gender, you know. Um, Paul in Galatians 3.28, he talks about how there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither um, um, male or female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is saying, you know, there is no gender. He's not saying that. He's saying all of that doesn't matter to God. He just looks at us and says, you are my children. All I see is the righteousness of my son. That's all he sees. Yet, when we do partiality, when we have prejudice, He's, he's, uh, James says, we are become judges of evil thoughts. When partiality is practiced, we have decreed, judged, decreed within ourselves that this particular group, this particular culture, this particular status, age, or, or wealth is deserving of less or is deserving of more. And we create our own values. We create our own distinctions because we look at people through our personal lens. We say, oh, this person, you know, I don't like him because he does X and Y and Z. Or this one, we, he's cool, we should hang out with him because he does X, Y, and Z. And God says, no, that's not right. That's not okay. We are creating our own distinctions. But that's not how God sees us. Remember, Galatians 2, he looks at us as those, as everyone, the same. We are all one in and in that same chapter, Paul, he talks about the law, you know, how if there was a law that it could get you to heaven, you know, the righteous would have been imputed. But he says all of scripture has considered us under sin. We're all sinners. All of us are deserving of hell. We don't get to have prejudice towards anyone. We don't get to have prejudice to those who are lost, to those who live life differently, to those who live life maybe, you know, not according to the Bible. We don't get to have this heart of disdain we don't get to have this heart of hatred towards them and jesus paid for our sins we get to go to heaven not on our merit 
but because of his. We don't get to deem other Christians less or more. We are one in Christ. We are equal ground. And so James is saying, you, to the Jewish Christians, we don't get to do that. That's not okay. Because God, he is not partial. He does not have respect of persons. He doesn't look at us that way. And so we don't get to do that. And, you know, there's this question, right? Like, if someone is a genuine threat or is a genuine, you know, danger, obviously don't just approach them all friendly and stuff like that. But James is more talking about the heart. Like, how, how can we look at people? How can we treat people with such prejudice, with such partiality? You see, as Christians, we have to understand our positions, our position as a Christian and realize we don't get to be that way. We don't get to have partiality. We have no right to be. God looks at as man as either we are guilty and condemned to hell or as his children, as Jesus, uh, Jesus' righteousness. And regardless of which, whether we be saved and other Christians or lost people, God still looks at them and he still loves them and he commands us to do so. We know the, we know the, the um, number one rule, love others as you love yourself. You see, why? while we may not agree with our lost co-workers' lives, or we may not agree with those who have different religions or different cultures, we don't get to have a heart of disdain at them. We don't get to judge them differently. If someone comes in here who has been a practicing atheist their whole life, we don't get to look down on them. We don't get to do that. We don't get to tell them to sit in the back or to ask them, what are you doing here? You know, someone who doesn't belong to the church doesn't exist. We get to welcome those people. Yes, we can be separated. We can be uh, distinct. But we have to present the love of God. We have to present the love of God. And so James, he just addresses that really quickly, you know, and he focuses it on the Jewish Christians. And so moving on, looking at verse 5, he says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? So James, he uh, in, these next follow- in these next following verses, he begins to contrast God's nature towards the poor and then the Jewish Christians' actions towards them. He says here in verse 5 that the gospel is extremely beautiful. It's extremely attractive to those who are poor, to those who have nothing. You know, people in third world countries, they love God or they love the idea of religion because it gives them hope of something more. It gives, it gives them an escape. It gives them like, Hope that there's more to their struggles. There's more to life than just their struggles, their lack, or their burdens. They love the gospel. They love some, They love um, what it presents. But the poor here can also mean those who are poor in spirit. Those who may have possessions, who may be, you know, well off financially, but they lack peace in their life. They lack comfort. They lack purpose or hope. And James, or yeah, James is saying God welcomes those people. He wants those people. Those who are those are the people he goes to. And James points out the absurdity of favoring or of having partiality. He says in verse six, while God loves those people, while He wants to reach those people, He tells the Jewish Christians, "You have despised them, but you have despised them, or you have done the complete." opposite of what God has done and demonstrated and wants you to do, you have despised them. And he says, do not the rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do they not blaspheme that, that worthy name by the which ye are called? He tells them, these rich folk, aren't they the same ones who bring you guys to court for being unable to pay the 
the expensive or exorbitant taxes? Aren't they the ones that do that? Aren't they the same ones who are so well off, who, whose life is so fine, they reject the idea of God. They said, oh, we don't need him. My life is okay. What do I need saving from? I don't care. They blaspheme him. It doesn't make sense. Like, how can you reject the ones who are looking, who are wanting some new hope, who are wanting something that is out there, looking for truth? How can you reject those? How can you hate those people and cater to the ones who don't have, who have no interest in God whatsoever? You see, Christians, if we're not careful, careful, we can be the ones who despise and push away those who are poor. Not, not, in, not in just material settings, but those who are needing peace, those who are needing comfort, those who are seeking some truth, some purpose in their lives, and we can push them away just because they look a little rough. They act a little rough. They can look intimidating. They can act a little bit odd. But that's, those are the people Jesus went to. In his ministry, he went to the maniacs, those who were demon possessed. He went to the publicans, those who who had a lifestyle that wasn't great. And he went to the lepers, people who were cast, literally cast out. And he went to the poor. Jesus went to those people. He didn't cast them aside just like everyone else. He didn't reject them because they acted differently or had a full-on demon with them. He went to those. You see, the only thing that turned Jesus away, Jesus away was unbelief, was unbelief. And so James is saying, how can you do that? How can you do that? It doesn't make sense to me. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he didn't pick and choose who he died for. He didn't, he didn't pick and choose who he extends that grace and that love to. And so why do we? If someone wants to know who Jesus is, someone wants to get to the cross, who, do we, who are we to, uh, to say, oh, you didn't get to go? Oh, no, you go to a different church. We don't get to do that. We don't get to do that. You see, Jesus, you know, it's, it's great. It's a Christmas story. God looked down upon us and saw our sin, saw our sinful culture, saw our sinful attitudes, saw our sinful nature, and yet he still came. And aren't we supposed to be like Christ? Imagine if God had partiality. It, it's, I don't know what you would do. If God simply says, oh, you cannot get saved because you're X, Y, and Z. It, what do you do then? And so James is saying, that's not how God works, so we don't get to do that. We don't get to be partial. So James, through this, the first part of this chapter just knocks out and takes out the sin of prejudice, the sin of, of treating others differently. Now, he goes on. Now, he's still in this context. He's still talking to the Jewish Christians, and so he shows that partiality or respect of persons is sinful because the obedience to God requires complete obedience. And it sounds weird, but, you know, people, you know, reading this or the Jewish Christians who read, they might say, oh, but partiality, you know, just treating someone a little bit different. You know, I don't actually full on hate them, but, you know, I try to stay away. It may not seem like such a big deal, may not seem like such a big sin, but James addresses that as well. You know, we might be thinking here, oh, yeah, but I probably don't have partiality as bad as the Jewish Christians did, or I may not have sin as bad as other things. But James addresses that here in the next few chapters. He talks about the unity of God's commandments, God's commandments. So James gives them a rhetorical here in verse 8. Um, he says, if you fulfill the royal law, the number one, you know, that we know, according to the scripture, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. Now he's saying, if you go and you don't do partiality, great. You love others as you love yourself. That's awesome. We love that. However, he goes on. He explains that God's commandments are unified. Verse 9. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. He's saying partiality is enough to condemn you as a sinner. So you may have, you know, he signed it and he says, you may have slight partiality, but you, know, you love people and, and you do this and that. He said, it doesn't matter. That's still sin. That still condemns you. You're still a, a transgressor. And you know, we may be thinking, okay, but it might be a slight partiality. I might disdain this group of people or who these guys are. But at least I give. At least I serve. At least I pray. At least I read. Or at least it's not this. At least I'm not committing that. We may not hate our neighbor, but we have that heart of disdain towards them. And he says here, Jane states that if anyone sins at one point, they are guilty of all. And here's why. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of cool because James kind of breaks this misconception that God's law, you know, is, is like a, it's like Jenga. You know, you can take off pieces that you don't like, but as long as it's standing, you're not taking any, you're not doing any big sins, taking any big important pieces, you're fine. You're good. And he, he instead he likens it to kind of like a window, a glass pane. He says, yeah, God's law is like this window pane. And if you smash it, if you hit it in anywhere, the whole window breaks. The whole window, the whole window shatters. It's not just, you know, we get to pick and choose. It's a glass pane. It's broken in any one point. And so look at verse 11. He says, for he that said, do not commit adultery, God, you know, for God said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, you know, James addresses it. Now, if you don't commit adultery, you know, you're great at that, you're faithful, but you kill, you're still a transgressor at all. You still broke the window. You've still broken God's commandments. And so he's saying all sin is equal and that any one of them condemns you to hell. Any one of them means you've broken the law. You know, we don't get to just take out pieces and call it a day and say, look, it's still standing. No, it's once you take something off, it's broken. It's like a window. And so James is saying, don't try to justify talking to Jewish Christians don't try to justify your partiality because it's not as severe as killing. It's not as severe as, you know, adultery. It's not as severe as stealing. Don't try to justify that. He says that's still wrong. He tells them no act of obedience gets to compensate for other acts of disobedience. That's not how it works. You know, and the store and the man, you know, James comes up with in verse 11, he says, yeah, you may have been faithful. You may have been pure. You may have, you know, great fidelity, but You've killed. You're still a sinner. You don't get to boast. You don't get to say, yeah, but, you know, I don't, I'm, I don't cheat. I'm not an adulterer. You're still a sinner. You've still done wrong. And so he's address, addressing Jewish Christians and their partiality. But this principle applies to us. It applies to all aspects of our obedience. We don't get to celebrate or boast that, hey, I might be doing this, you know, small little sin, but at least, you know, my church attendance is great. No one knows about it. Um, I give, I, uh, I help out the church, I serve, and we get to have this little sin, and we get to, like, 
boast like, oh, but it's not as bad. You know, and at least while I'm doing this, at least I'm not doing this or that. James is saying, no, that's not how it works. God's, God's commandments, God's law is whole. It's unified. You break one, point, one piece, it's done. It's broken. And so everyone knows that we've done something. We've all sinned. And so James is trying to say, we are not that great. We're all still sinners saved by grace. And he says, therefore, therefore, look at verse 12. So he says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. He, tell, he ties it all back. He says, so if you're going to, when you realize that you're a sinner and that you've broken God's law, no matter what it is, get that you know, misconception that you're doing okay, that you're doing great just because you're not doing this or that. No. He says, you're a sinner and God has died for you. Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and you're a Christian. He says, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged by a law of liberty. So behave like someone who has been saved, someone who has been extended mercy and grace. He says, God has shown us so much mercy, so much grace. We have to behave that way. We don't get to sit up here and have this false sense of superiority saying, oh, I'm a Christian. Yeah, stay away from those people. Oh, I'm this or that. I got to stay away from those people. He says, you are as sinful as them, as guilty as them. And, you know, we look at other Christians saying, oh, he's not serving as much as we are, or he's not, you know, is he really growing as a Christian? And we, we can think like that. And God says, you are saved by the same grace he is. You're not any better. So you don't get to do that. And so James is telling him, you need to live in such a way that you understand I'm a saved sinner. You know, uh, James says law of liberty, and this is the gospel, which allowed us to be saved and free from sin. His law, you know, God's law is no longer a burden, nor does it condemn us to hell. He says, this is the law of liberty. We don't get to withhold mercy and forgiveness from others after, received, after having received it ourselves. You know, we don't get to discriminate. We don't get to any, do any of that. And so while James is addressing partiality of Jewish Christians, telling them, you don't get to do that. You don't get to hate on these people. You don't get to behave like this. And you, know, get, you don't get to call it small. You don't get to boast about it. What small sin do we have that we're saying, oh, it's fine. It's okay. See, if us Christians, if we desire to obey God, if we desire to follow his commandments, it must be in unity. We don't get to choose what or when we obey God, on what aspects. You know, God, I'll give you um, 70% of my life, but I'm going to do my own thing when it comes to service, when it comes to loving my family, when it comes to evangelism. But I'll follow you on everything else. It doesn't work. We don't get to pick and choose our pieces. It's a window. We take it as a whole. And so obedience is a lifestyle. It's a whole thing. It's the entire thing. See, loving our neighbors as ourselves is simply one aspect of it. There's many, many more. So James is saying, yeah, Jewish Christians, you don't get to be partial because that's all of God's law. You know, you don't get to both saying, oh, but it's, it's just a small thing or it's just a tiny thing. At least I'm not doing that. Or at least I'm not doing this. He's like, yeah, but you're still committing partiality. That's still sin. That's still wrong. And so James is telling us what sin, you know, or so that applies to us as in like, what sin do we have that we're saying, oh, it's okay. It's, it's something small. At least it's not that. Or at least I do this. You know, I help out at the church. What sin is that that's, that we're hiding? He tells us, you know, we're all sinners. We're all guilty of it. And so we don't get to be 
partial to others. Now, James, still talking about a life under the law of liberty, he switches over as to why we ought to have complete obedience. And here he starts talking about genuine faith, true faith. Now, verse 14 gets a little doozy, so follow me here. Verse 14, here's what he says. You know, what doth it profit? What's the use? Right? He says, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Whoa, does that, does that mean James is saying, you know, you have to have faith and works to get saved, right? No, that's not what he's saying. So, you know, he uses the same word, works, right? However, when Paul talks about it in Galatians and Romans, Paul addresses works or actions that were meant to substitute Jesus. We're meant to substitute the gospel. A way of trying to get into heaven by our own merits, by our own deeds. However, James addressing Christians, James addressing those who are already saved, his works, the one he's talking about, are the ones that are produced because of our acceptance in Jesus, because of the gospel. And so he's saying here, anyone can have a claim to have believed the gospel and have accepted Christ, but still lack true Christianity. How? Well, it's a thing called intellectual faith. Now, atheists know about the gospel. Atheists know about how Jesus died on the cross and paid for our sins. Does that mean they're saved? No. no. You know, and later on in the chapter, James talks about, you know, how devils also believe in Jesus. Doesn't mean they're saved. They know of him. They know who he is. James is talking about a true, genuine, saving faith here. He says that a claim of faith without works becomes extremely, extremely doubtful. If someone claims to be saved, and yet they have no fruit, they have no actions, it's a little bit doubtful. A lot doubtful, actually. You know, that's like me claiming I have a nursing degree like Mo does. I have a nursing degree. However, you have never seen me work at the hospital. You have never seen me treat a patient. You have never seen me do anything nurse-related. Now, I can make that claim. I can say all that. However, is there... If I don't do anything, is there any way of you guys knowing that it's true? It's like me saying, I own a private jet. I can easily prove that to you guys by showing it, by flying in it. But if I never do that, can you really trust my claim? No. It's, it's a little, uh, okay, man. And so James is saying, if someone claims to be Christian, someone has believed they are Christian, however, but they don't have works, they don't have anything that shows a change, they don't act like it, It's a little doubtful. It's a little suspect. And so our faith is tested by our obedience, by our works to God. It makes us want to do it. So James in verses 15 and 16, he reasons that scenario, right? He says, if a brother or sister, you know, be naked and destitute of daily food, they need help, they need nourishment. And one of you say unto them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? He's saying if someone comes in asking for help, they're cold, they need garments, they need food, and instead you tell them, oh, go be warm, go on, Godspeed. But then you don't give him, you don't give them coats, you don't give them food that you have readily. He says, what's the point? They should have never come to your door in the first place because they're still as cold, they're still as hungry than when they came. So it's, it's pointless. It doesn't make sense. Everyone knows that in this scenario, giving food, giving clothing is the least that you can do. If you have it, it's the right way to go. 
So look at verse 17. James says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, a man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. And so James, or James comes up with a, a scenario again. He says, yea, a man may say, thou hast faith. You have faith, James, and I have works. And so James tells them, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He's saying that faith not accompanied by action is dead. It's, it's not profitable. And so he's saying, you got to show me. You got to prove it to me. Fly your private jet, you know, or treat this patient, diagnose this patient if you have a nursing degree. Now, I may have those actual skills. I may actually have a nursing degree. But if I never even actually do it, what's the point? No one, no one gets treated. No one gets helped. No one gets healed. I have my nursing skills. I have my nursing degree for no profit, for no profit. And so he says, you know, how, what's the point of having faith? What's the point of claiming your faith if there is no profit? So there is no action. There's nothing being done. He says, it's, it's, it's dead. It's useless. And so James is saying, you know, we can claim to have faith in God, right? We can claim to have accepted him, to be a Christian. But if we fail to do what Christians do, if we fail to do what they should be doing, then we have no basis on our claim. Like, that's just a crazy claim that you're making because we have no basis. We have no grounds. And so James is saying that true saving faith isn't proven to be present by simply understanding the gospel or or knowing the gospel, but rather by the works it produces. Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, 16 uh, to 20, that you shall know them by their fruits. You're going to know who they are by what they produce. No one goes to an apple tree and gets thorns. No one goes to a rose bush and gets oranges. Now, you will know them by who they are. And if you're a Christian, you do Christian things. You produce Christian fruit. You do Christian work. Because Jesus changes the lives of those who truly accept Him. And so, application here is that if we are truly Christians, if we are actual believers, if we claim to have the saving faith of Jesus Christ, then we should be doing works because they come together. We should be practicing complete obedience. James uh, reasons with the Jewish uh, Christians that if you are Christians, if you are actual full-on believers, you shouldn't be being partial. You shouldn't be having respect of persons because that's not what Christians do. That is not what is the, the natural byproduct of being Christian. And he goes on, he talks about, you know, in the rest of the verse or chapter, he talks about those who prove their faith, those who have shown their faith by their actions. You know, and he says the word here, justified. Abraham was justified. That just means he was confirmed. He was verified. We know for sure that Abraham had faith. Why? Because of what he did. He believed in God so much. He had faith in what God said, that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. He had his knife up. He was going to stab him. And he showed that he had faith. Works or fruits or obedience, whatever you may call it, is the only grounds in which we can say we have true saving faith and that we are actually Christian because faith produces works. You cannot find an example of true faith that did not result in action. The, the Israelites, when they doubted God and they said, we're not going to the promised land, they didn't have faith. They had no action. But Joshua, who believed God, who had faith, he wanted to storm that place. He wanted 
could do it. He wanted to, act, to do some action. He had, you know, this, this ambition to go, to do, and, uh, to do. And he says, you cannot have faith and not have works. It, 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 it doesn't make sense. You, having faith is what causes those works. You know, James is saying, like, if you, I don't know, if you push down a, a domino, he says, and it hits the other one, that other one will go down, and it just keeps going. That's the natural cause and effect of faith. And so if you say you have it, but there's no works, one's either useless, or two, you've got to check yourself. Are you actually saved? Because if we are genuinely saved, naturally, we ought to be obedient. We ought to be doing works. We ought to be following God's law. And if not, if we, are, if, if we say we have faith and we're not doing that, I can only think of two reasons. One, maybe we evaluate ourselves. Is, is there no tugging of the Holy Spirit to, to call us to obedience? Is there no tugging of the Holy Ghost to tell us, hey, we need to start being a Christian. We need to start acting like a Christian. Or two, we are simply living in disobedience. Simply living in disobedience because our faith does not allow us to just not do anything. It, it doesn't make sense. Living faith doesn't just sit there. It does stuff. It has actions. And so James ends this chapter, and he's still addressing to the, Jew, to the Jewish Christians saying, don't have partiality. Don't judge others. Don't have discrimination. Don't have prejudice because you have to follow the whole law of God. It's not just Jenga. It's not just pieces. It's the whole thing. And why we should follow, why we should do all of God's judgments, because we are Christians and, that what's, and that's what we're supposed to do. Our faith is what causes that. And so while James addresses the Jewish Christians, our faith, or it applies to us as well. You know, he tells them, don't be partial because it breaks the unity of God's commandments. And as Christians, we shouldn't be partial. Well, let me ask us, do we have any Partiality, do we have any prejudice, how little it may be, to different ages, to different religious groups, to different cultures? Do we have any of that? And what other small sin do we have that we justify that causes us to break the unity of God's commandments? What is that? How do we get, um, are we boasting that we get to do all these other ones? I follow 80% of God's will. Let me just have this small 20%. It's not going to harm anyone. James says, that's not okay. Because, as a Christian, do we demonstrate any real evidence for our saving faith? Do we actually say, I'm saved, I have accepted Christ as my Savior, and do we have any evidence, any solid ground to say that we are? Do we have works that prove, man, God is changing their lives, Jesus has touched their lives? And so, as we close today, I just want, I just want you guys to think about that, that do we have any sin that we are just dismissing, that we're okay with, that we are following 90%, 99% of God's law, but I'm keeping this one. And do we, as Christians, if we say that we are, are do we have any solid proof of it? Because we should be, we ought to be, our faith calls us to action. Let's pray.